Amen. Arguably one of the greatest novels in English history is John Bunyan's classic work, The Pilgrim's Progress. It tells the story of a man named Christian and his journey towards the celestial city. A story begins with Christian carrying this incredibly large burden upon his back as he is living in the city of destruction. He tries everything in his power to remove the burden from his back, but he cannot. And Christian reads a book, and through reading that book, which is the scriptures, he becomes convinced that if he dies with that burden on his back, his body will sink not only into the grave, but into the depths of hell itself. A Christian in time meets a man named Evangelist. An evangelist tells him to look for a, a small gate over the horizon and enter that gate, and there he can deal with his burden. And shortly after entering into that narrow gate, Christian comes upon a cross. And as he looks upon the cross of Jesus Christ, the burden that is on his back rolls away. Not long after, hearing that his sins have been forgiven, he is commissioned to now continue his journey towards the celestial city. And on that journey, he comes across three men sleeping by the side of the road with chains on their feet. The Christian is troubled by what he sees. And so he approaches these three men, and he attempts to wake them up. He says, wake up. Don't you realize the danger that you're in? There is one who's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he might devour. You need to wake up. Let me help you get these chains off your feet and help you get on your way so we can continue towards the celestial city. The first man blinks his eyes and looks around and says, I, I see no danger. The second man says, just a little more sleep. And the third man says, we don't need your help. And so Christian leaves those three men chained and asleep as he continues on his journey to the celestial city. That interaction illustrates something important about the Christian life. Nobody finds salvation unless they're desperate for grace. Nobody finds salvation unless or until they're desperate for grace. Until you experience the overwhelming weight, the burden of your sin, like Christian felt in your, your total sinfulness and inability to remove that burden on your own, you will never look to Jesus for rescue. You'll be just like those men that are shackled and asleep. You won't see any danger, so you won't look for any rescue. 
I'm going to invite you, if you will, to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. In this section of Matthew's gospel so far, we've covered in chapters 18 and 19 how kingdom citizens relate to each other. We talked about people that have sinned against us. We talked about our relationships with uh, children and in marriage and with singles, all these different relationships. But what about somebody who's not yet a citizen of the kingdom? Does Jesus have anything in this section of Matthew's gospel to say to those who do not yet belong to Jesus? In our text this morning, there is an individual who confronts Jesus with a question, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And in Jesus' response, he teaches us what I believe is the big idea from this passage and the big idea of today's sermon, and that is that salvation is freely given to all who are desperate for grace. In this room, I believe that there are some of you who are just like this man approaching Jesus. You're on the outside looking in, you're, you're not yet a follower of Jesus. You're not yet a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You're, you've not yet entered through the narrow gate, Jesus Christ. You're not yet on your path, on the path to the celestial city. If that's you this morning, I plead with you to lean in and listen to what Jesus himself says about how you, dear friend, can have eternal life. My prayer is that if you walked into this room with shackles and a little bit of drowsiness in your soul, that God would use his word to wake you up to your need for grace. Most of us in this room are more like Christian and Pilgrim's Progress. We have already entered through the narrow gate. We have already put our faith in Jesus. We're already citizens of the kingdom. We're already on our way towards the celestial city. Yet like Christian in the story, we regularly encounter people that don't yet have a relationship with Jesus. We have in our text an incredible opportunity to see how Jesus himself speaks to and cares for somebody who's not yet a Christian. So my plea for you, dear Christians in this room, is that you would look and listen at the feet of Jesus as he teaches us how to care for those who do not yet know him. With God's help, we're going to examine three reasons why we should be desperate for grace from our text this morning. Three reasons. Number one, because we are totally sinful. Number two, because we are totally helpless. And number three, because salvation is totally worth it. Three reasons why we should be desperate for grace. Reason number one, you and I are totally sinful. Now, when you hear that, how does that strike you? Totally sinful. I wonder if there's anyone that would say, hopefully not out loud, but you would say, well, really? I mean, I'm not as bad as that guy. And maybe you could even think of someone sitting near you, and you know he's worse than you. You know she's worse than you. And you're thinking, really, how can I really be totally sinful? I mean, come on. I, I haven't done this or that or fill in the blank. 
Well, Jesus, as he's interacting with this young ruler, think of him almost like a prosecuting attorney. You know, a prosecuting attorney has to bring forth evidence before the jury to convict somebody. Jesus is bringing evidence before this young man to convict him and us that all of us are totally sinful. And he presents, he marshals two main pieces of evidence in our text to show that we are totally sinful. The first is that we are not good. Look at Matthew 19, beginning in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And here's what's happening. This man comes up to Jesus and he says, what's the good work? What's the good thing that I need to do so that I can have eternal life? That seems like a decent question. What's the good thing? What do I need to do? And Jesus, rather than answering that question, and just think for a second about how many Baptist preachers might answer that question. Come down an aisle. Let's play just as I am. Everybody bow your heads and close your eyes and raise your hand if you're ready to accept Jesus. We might answer it in a way like that, but Jesus does nothing like that. Jesus instead attacks this man's presupposition. He says, what are you talking about good? I don't think you know what goodness really is. In the words of Aniga Montoya, you keep using that word. I'm not sure it means what you think it means. And so Jesus attacks that presupposition. What are you talking about, about goodness? You are not good. Only one is good. God is the standard of true goodness. Until you examine yourself, dear brother, sister, friend, under the light of God's goodness and who he is, you will always think that you're better than you really are. Think of it like this. Um, Back in 2009, back when our pandemics used to be pretty mild, we had the H1N1 flu uh, breakout. You guys remember that? Way back in the good old days. Anyways, uh, back in H, or back in 2009, there's H1N1 flu, and Good Morning America decided to do an experiment on how well people washed their hands during that flu outbreak, and so they sent a crew to a fifth grade classroom. Pretty sure you can guess how this experiment went. What they did was they, they coated the kids' hands in some sort of a clear lotion that was only visible under a black light. And the, the amount of lotion that would be left on the children's hands at the end of the day would reveal how well they washed their hands. If the students could wash away all the invisible lotion, then the theory goes, then they probably can wash away the germs off their hands. Well, the students went about their classes as usual, washing their hands and using hand sanitizer throughout the day like they normally did. But then when the news crew shined their black light on the children at the end of the day, the results were, let's just say, less than sanitary. Of the 25 students in the class, only two had washed their hands well enough to remove the lotion. 
There's lotion all over their faces and clothes and all over the classroom. In fact, even the teacher was revealed to be a poor hand washer. Now, what's the lesson for us? It's hard to wash away grime if you can't see it. Dear brother, sister, friend, you have grime in a place that you cannot see. You have filth not on the outside but in your soul. The heart, Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Your heart is covered in filth. Jesus says out of the heart springs all manner of evil and wickedness. You, dear friend, are not good. You might think that your life looks pretty clean. You might see yourself as a pretty good person, but your sin lives in a place where it is hard to see your heart. Now, I wonder if you're hearing this right now and you're thinking, well, this sounds pretty mean and pretty offensive. Well, I guess in some ways, indeed, it does. But let us remind ourselves that the very standard of what it means to love is found in Jesus Christ himself. How do we know what love is? By looking to Jesus. And Jesus, in love, shows this man that he indeed is not good. Is it unkind for a cancer doctor to tell you that you have cancer? If it's not unkind, if you want him to tell you that so that you can treat it, then why not would you want the spiritual, the great physician to come to you and expose the cancer in your and my soul? That's exactly what Jesus does. Uh, like the Good Morning American crew, America crew, Jesus also shines a light to help us see the grime in our hearts. And the light that Jesus shines is the law of God. Look at what Jesus says next in verse 17, the middle part. He says to this man, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now, pause for just a moment. Jesus is not saying that the way to have eternal life is by keeping the commandments. What he is saying is this guy doesn't quite understand how sinful he really is. And so Jesus takes the Ten Commandments like a black light, like a spotlight, and shines it on the heart of this man so that he can see who he really is. And that's the second piece of evidence that Jesus brings forth to show that we're totally sinful. And that is, not only are we not good, but letter B, we have broken God's law. We have broken God's law. Look at verse 18. The man said to Jesus... Which commandments do I need to keep? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus takes this man directly to where the law of God is summarized, the Ten Commandments. Now, by, by the way, just as an aside, let me give an encouragement to all the parents in the room for just a moment. Whether your kids are 4 or 14 or 18, let me challenge you. Teach your young ones the Ten Commandments. Teach them the Ten Commandments. Um, 
little Zeke and I have been going through the story of the Bible together in the mornings, and we just hit the Ten Commandments this week, and after a couple of days of working on them, he can tell you the Ten Commandments. I'm just going to make it super simple for all of us and show you some simple hand motions so you can learn the Ten Commandments. All right, so everybody go like this. There is one God, one God. You should have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. Number two, no images of God. Number three, like a W, we teach our kids speak good words about God. Remember, uh, it says, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Number four is to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. So rest on the Sabbath. Fifth commandment is honor your father and mother. The sixth commandment is do not kill the seventh commandment, we try to make it four-year-old appropriate, so or five-year-old appropriate. Uh, mommy and daddy together forever. You shall not commit adultery. The eighth commandment, do not steal. Do not take. The ninth commandment, do not bear false witness. Do not lie. And the tenth commandment, don't covet. Okay, there's the Ten Commandments. Why do we teach these to our kids? Because this is the light. This is the spotlight. This is the mirror in which we see our sin. Do you want your children to see their need for a Savior, to be desperate for grace? Then show them the law of God. That's what Jesus does in his love to this rich young ruler. Now, he's trying to get this guy to admit his sin. Let me ask ourselves here this morning, are we willing to admit that we have broken God's law? What if we just did a little test through some of the Ten Commandments that Jesus mentions here? Have you ever murdered anybody? Now, hopefully, most of us would say no. Although, if that's part of your past, there is hope and redemption and forgiveness in Christ. But I want you to remember the standard that Jesus sets for the sixth commandment. Listen to Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. If we're honest, we've broken that pretty much every time we've crossed the tunnel. <laughs> this is what Jesus says is murder of the heart. If you have ever unjustly been angry with someone, insulted another person, called them an uncharitable name, you are guilty of murder in the heart. So if you're honest with yourself, dear friend, then you are guilty. Have you ever committed adultery? Seventh commandment. Again, many of us hopefully would say no, but notice again the standard that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. According to Jesus, if you've ever had a lustful thought, you have committed adultery of the heart. That would include pretty much everybody north of puberty. Do you see how Jesus is tearing all of us down to show us that all of us are lawbreakers? Or have you ever stolen anything? Well, most of us might be tempted to say something like, well, I've never robbed a bank. 
you know? I mean, I, I've never held up a train, never done anything like that. I mean, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Well, whether or not something counts as theft isn't based on the value of the object that was stolen. Here's what it means to steal something. It means to take something that doesn't belong to you without permission. Ever done that? Ever swiped a few quarters from mom's purse when she wasn't looking? Do you ever get a, some ice cream for you and your wife and you fill up two bowls and you eat a few scoops from your bowl and a few from hers and then make it look like you were charitable and even when you bring it out to her? I don't know why that was such a specific example. <laughs> Have you ever taken work that wasn't yours and presented it as yours for school, an essay, a quiz, or a test? Have you ever filled out a time card and fudged the numbers a little bit to make it work a little bit more in your favor? You see, no matter what the object is that you took, if you have done it, you have stolen. We don't need masks and guns to be thieves. Most of us were doing it before we learned to walk. Have you ever lied? If you say no, you're lying. Have you always loved your neighbor as yourself? Uh, th this is not one of the Ten Commandments, but it's a summary of Commandments 5 to 10. If you truly love your neighbor, you will honor the authorities, the Fifth Commandment. You won't commit heart murder. You won't commit heart adultery. You won't steal. You won't lie. You won't covet. And if you've already admitted you've done one or more of those things, then that, guess what? You've broken this one too. So, how'd you do? Do you feel like you're still a pretty good person compared to the light of God's law? If you say, yeah, I still think I'm pretty good, you're a lot like the man in our text. Because look at verse 20. Look at how he responds when Jesus walks him through the Ten Commandments. The young man said to Jesus, all these I have kept. What still do I lack? I wonder if there's anyone in this room, who maybe not verbally, but in your heart, you're tempted to respond just like that. I've done all that stuff. I'm pretty good. I'm still pretty good. What more do you want from me, God? So Jesus, again, in his kindness, goes for the jugular. Look at verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, or we could say complete, if you want to have all that you need to have to earn your way into heaven, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. What in the world is Jesus talking about? Is Jesus requiring us to sell everything that we have in order to be one of his people? And if he is, isn't that a form of works righteousness? 
The answer to that question is no. Jesus is not saying, sell your stuff and that's how you earn heaven. Although, Christian, anybody that would desire to follow Jesus, you cannot follow Jesus unless you give him everything. That doesn't mean you have to sell everything tonight. But it does mean that there can be no corner in your life, no room in your soul that you say, that's for me alone, and Jesus can't touch that. Jesus is not telling this man, here's the work you have to do to earn salvation. Here's what he's doing. He's trying to get this man finally to realize his sin. And he does that through the 10th commandment. Jesus gives the five, uh, commandments five through nine initially. The 10th commandment, remember, is don't covet. Now, here's the thing about commandments five to nine. Most of them, in one way or the other, are, are kind of outwardly verifiable. You can kind of tell eventually if someone's committed them on the outside, but not with a command to covet. When the 10th commandment says, do not covet. It is immediately going right to the heart. This is a sin that we commit while singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. This is a sin we can commit in our Sunday best while looking as if we're doing all the right things. This is a completely heart sin. Paul himself actually said, I wouldn't know what my sin was if it were not for the 10th commandment, which said, do not covet. We break the 10th commandment anytime our hearts are not fully and completely satisfied with all that God is for us. And so Jesus is going to test this man. Are you really the rule keeper that you think you are? Let's see if you've kept the 10th commandment. Are you willing to let all this stuff go and just have me? We know the answer, don't we? The text tells us in verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Finally, this man realizes what Jesus has been trying to get him to see. He is totally sinful. He has broken God's law. Finally, he gets it. And yet, he walks away sorrowful. I pray that that would not be the fate of anyone in this room this morning. Perhaps for the first time this morning, as you listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 19, you are seeing, I am not good. I am not righteous. I have sinned against God. I have broken his laws. Praise God if you agree with that. But do not recognize that and then leave without finding the salvation that's available in Jesus. This man is kind of like the squirrel that we saw in our backyard years and years ago. Uh, apparently, this little squirrel had been rummaging through our recycle bin. And we know that because we saw on his, in his paws uh, was a bottle of extra crunchy Jif peanut butter. 
empty bottle, of course, but he's holding on to this jar of peanut butter in his paws, and he's trying to climb a tree. But as long as he holds on to the jar of peanut butter, he can't grab onto that tree. Some of us in this room are just like that squirrel. There's something that you're holding on to, and until you let it go, you can never run to Jesus. What is it that you're holding on to? For this man, it was his possessions. Maybe that's you. Maybe you just don't want to give Jesus control over everything in your life. Some of you might be holding on to your lifestyle. You just want to live the way you want to live, and you don't want Jesus to tell you how to live. I remember years ago having a conversation with my brother and asking him what was keeping him from following Jesus, and I asked him point blank, are you afraid that if you follow Jesus, you'll have to give up the way that you live? And he said yes. And yet he still didn't look to Jesus for salvation. Or maybe for some of you, what you're holding on to is your works. You're like the third man that Christian ran into on his path to the celestial city. The man who said, we don't need your help. And what you think is, I'm going to figure this out on my own. Can I plead with you, friend? The longer you try to figure this out on your own, the deeper a hole you dig yourself into. So, dear friend, please look to Jesus. To the Christians in this room, before we move on, let me just remind you that because we know that we're totally sinful, we ought to be the first people that can open up when we're struggling with sin. Why is it that to join the church, to come to Christ, we admit, I'm a horrible sinner. I'm so bad that Jesus had to die on the cross for me. And then once we get into the community, we say, well, I can't open up about that. Christian, let me remind you, we already know the worst thing about you. The worst thing about you is that your sin was so great, it required the crucifixion of the sinless Son of God. So why is it that we're afraid to admit when we sin, when we struggle? Let us be people that are willing to admit our sin to one another because we already believe that we're sinful and we're totally sinful apart from Christ. Well, we can be desperate. We should be desperate for grace because we're totally sinful. Number two, because we are totally helpless. Totally helpless. After this man walks away, Jesus turns to his disciples and has a conversation with them that illustrates how helpless we really are. Verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus is not saying that it's a sin to be wealthy. Uh, there are many people throughout the scriptures that are wealthy and they're not condemned for having a lot of wealth. So why does Jesus focus on the wealthy in verse 23? Well, in Jesus' day, if you were a Jew and you saw another wealthy Jew, you pretty much assumed absolutely he's going to heaven. Why? Because look at all his stuff. God must have blessed him. 
And so Jesus comes along and he says, did you know it's possible for everything to look great on the outside and you actually be on your way to hell? Just because you have material prosperity, just because your life is going great and you don't feel like you need anything from God, just because all those things seem true of you, that doesn't mean that heaven is guaranteed. Jesus drives that point home in verse 24 when he says, again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I have vivid memories as a young boy of some preacher in my home church uh, showing pictures of a camel going through this really small gate in Jerusalem. Supposedly, this gate was called the Eye of the Needle, and the whole point was that the camel could walk through an ordinary gate, but to go through this really tiny gate, the camel had to take off all of his stuff on his pack, and he had to kind of get on his knees and then go through that gate. So the idea is getting to heaven if you're rich is really hard. The problem with that interpretation is that there is no record that such a gate ever existed. It's made up. What does Jesus mean? What's the eye of the needle? What do you think it is? It's that tiny little hole. If we're honest, most of us can't even get a piece of thread through the eye of the needle. Jesus says it's easier to take the biggest animal in Israel, a camel, and shove that joker through the tiny little hole of a needle. It's easier to do that than for someone to earn their way to heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. That's Jesus' point. If rich people who in Jesus' day appeared to be so outwardly blessed by God, if they, if they cannot save themselves, then the disciples are thinking, who can be saved? And Jesus, in the interaction that follows with them, teaches us two truths that demonstrate our total helplessness. First, we are saved by sovereign grace. We're saved by sovereign grace. Look at verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and he said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The disciples are stunned. The rich are not any closer to heaven than anybody else. And so they say, how can anybody be saved? Jesus says, it's not possible for you guys to do it. It's only possible if I do it. We are saved by God's sovereign grace and not by our works. Through the years, many of us perhaps have been taught an unbiblical picture of salvation. Maybe goes going something like this. You're on a plane, you're about to crash, and all you need to do is grab a parachute, and if you grab that parachute, then you can be saved. Jesus is like the parachute. 
Or another version of it goes like this. You're in the ocean and you're drowning and all you need to do is grab onto the life preserver and then you can be saved. Jesus is like the life preserver. Just put on Jesus and you can be saved. There's only one problem with both of those illustrations of salvation. Dead people don't put on parachutes and dead people don't grab life preservers. The Bible is clear. Apart from Christ, before Christ, Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Here's a better way to think about the salvation that is offered to you in Jesus. Imagine that you leave church this morning and you turn on the news and you hear news that Malaysian Airlines flight MH370 has been found. You might not remember much about that. Uh, departed from Malaysia with 239 souls on March 8th, 2014, but vanished before ever reaching its destination in Beijing. The, the disappearance of that Boeing 777 aircraft remains one of the most perplexing mysteries in aviation history. So, watch the news. They found MH370. And then you notice... The press secretary of the President of the United States is on to make an announcement. We are sending a diving team to go and rescue those 239 souls that were aboard MH370. By the way, they have been underwater, presumably, for 3,387 days. What are the odds of finding one of those souls alive? It would take a miracle. It would take resurrection. And that is exactly the way the Bible pictures salvation. Listen to Ephesians 2 again. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. How do you receive salvation? As a gift of sovereign grace. Jesus says, it's not possible for you to earn it. It's not possible for you to do anything to get it. You must receive Receive the gift of grace from a sovereign God. Christian, this means that when you tell your neighbors and your family members and your co-workers about Jesus, the pressure is off. You don't have to change their heart. You don't have to save them. Your job is simply to do what Jesus does and announce the good news, to help them to see their sin and help them to see what Jesus has done. Your job is to do that. It's God's job to change their heart. With man, it's impossible, but with God, it's possible. That leads to an important question. If we're saved by sovereign grace, does that mean we don't do anything? Do we have no responsibility to respond? The second thing we learn in our passage is that we are saved through repentant faith. We're saved through repentant faith. After Jesus says it's impossible for any man to save himself, Peter replies in verse 27, see, if we've left everything and followed you, well, then what will we have? In Peter's response, we see the pattern that every unbeliever must follow to receive the salvation that Jesus offers. Peter says, we've left everything. So 
similar to the word repent, to turn away. You're going one direction and you turn to Jesus. To repent is to say, Jesus, I'm giving you control over all all of my life, every room, every area, my marriage, my sexuality, my money, my job, my appetites, my desires, my ambitions, all of it belongs to you, Jesus. That's what it means to leave everything. And then Peter says, we left everything to follow you, and that's believing, that's faith. We must have faith in Jesus that he really came to this earth, that he really lived a sinless life, that he really died a sinner's death on a cross, and that he really rose from the dead so that whoever believes in him can have eternal life. Repentance and faith. We respond to the good news of the gospel by trusting in what Jesus has done. Brothers and sisters, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you have turned from your sins and put your faith in Jesus, let me just remind you, you have no ground on which to boast. Because even that faith, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, is a gift from God. You're like little kids on Father's Day, giving their daddy a present for Father's Day, and it's sweet and kind and a reminder of their love for him, but the little kid buys that present with whose money? Dad's money. When you repent and believe, you give back to the Father something that he first gave to you. So don't boast. The most humble person should be the Christian. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, let me plead with you. If you've never turned from your sins and put your faith in Jesus, you can do that today. You can do that right where you are. With man, it's impossible, but with God, it is possible. Let me plead with you. If that's where you're, you are today, would you talk to me or another one of our pastors today? So if, if you call out to him and put your faith in him, we want you to make that public through baptism, and that's coming up in just a few weeks. A great opportunity for you you to say to this church family, I have turned from my sins and put my faith in Jesus. Let me give you one more reason why we need to be desperate for grace. We're totally sinful. We're totally helpless. And number three, salvation is totally worth it. There's three reasons Jesus shares with us in 28 through the end of the chapter. First, he says we're included in the people of God. Jesus answers Peter's question in verse 28. He says, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says his disciples, new covenant believers, are judging the 12 tribes of Israel? So God's people, if you come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, you are grafted into the people of God. All those promises throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation are yes in Jesus. Like the old children's song sings, My, our father Abraham had many sons and many sons had father Abraham. I am one of them. You become a part of the old covenant people of God. You get grafted in through the new covenant, through faith in Jesus. You are his people, church. Number two, it's worth it because we're adopted into the family of God. Look at verse 29. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold. We know that several of these disciples left their families behind to follow Jesus. 
Throughout Christian history, countless others have done the same. It could be for you, the greatest stumbling block to you following Jesus is you know that some dear relationship in your life is going to be affected negatively by that decision. I'm going to have to leave that person behind. If you were with us on Easter Sunday, you remember I told you about a man we met in Turkey who had to flee his home country when his family decided to stone him because he had become a Christian. Most of you will never face a threat like that in this life, but you might be ostracized. People might call you a bigot, backwards, stupid. They might never treat you the same way, again, if you insist on following Jesus. But what does Jesus promise us? He says, listen, if you'll give all that up, you'll receive a hundredfold. You'll become a part of the family of God. In Mark's account of this story, Mark tells us that this is a promise for this life. Now, this is a promise I can just tell you that I've experienced in my own life. Back in 2016, when Holly and I were trying to find out where the Lord would lead us and where we would have our family and really dig down roots and invest our lives, one of the things she told me, she said, there's three things that I'm praying for, three things that I want. I want the Lord to uh, place us somewhere on the East Coast. I want us to be somewhere with a climate that's similar to where we currently lived in Louisville, Kentucky. And I want to be closer to my family. They live in Atlanta. Well, when Pocosin Baptist Church came calling, it seemed like God had answered two out of three. Climate similar to Louisville, Kentucky, it's on the East Coast, and yet we were 150 miles further away from family than we were when we lived in Louisville. And yet as I reflect upon what God has done by sending us here, really God said yes to all three. What God did is said, I'm going to give you a different family. I'm going to give you brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and grandparents and great-grandparents and all that and more, a hundredfold relationships you would have never known, you would have never tasted their sweetness. You're going to have all that and more when you follow me. That's a promise that you receive, dear friend, if you put your faith in Jesus. You become a part of a family. You become a part of a church. And number three, and most importantly, we are forever in the presence of God. Middle of verse 29, and you will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. By that second sentence, the last or first, the first or last, Jesus is saying, listen, whether you put your faith in me in the, in the ninth hour, like the thief on the cross, or whether you live your whole life as a follower of Jesus, you're going to receive the same reward. What is it? Eternal life. And what's that? It's not just living forever. It's living forever with Jesus. It's having him. It's having this gracious, kind, glorious, loving, sacrificial, serving, humble, meek, mild, tough, tender Savior forever and ever all these promises can be yours, dear friend, if you'll just stop trusting in yourself and be desperate for grace. In Pilgrim's Progress, as Christian nears the celestial city, he comes across another man named 
ignorance. Ignorance, too, is going toward the celestial city, and he has a long conversation with Christian. Ignorance, though, was very much unlike Christian. Ignorance did not believe that he was really that sinful. Ignorance refused to believe his heart was really as bad as the king had said. Ignorance didn't believe he was totally helpless. He believed his good works were, were necessary for him to earn the love of the king. He refused to believe that it was enough to trust the king alone. So when ignorance finally arrived to the celestial city and knocked on the door, he was refused entrance in that kingdom. And he was tied up and carried away. And near the very end of John Bunyan's classic book, he says this about ignorance. Then I saw that there was a way to hell even from the very gates of heaven. Isn't that what happens to the rich man in Matthew 19? He's staring at the gate of heaven. Jesus, Jesus, remember, he says, I am the way, I'm the gate. Enter through me. He's in the presence of Christ, of the gate of heaven himself. He's right there. And he walks away sorrowful on his path to hell, holding on to his stuff. And there may be in this room some of you that will climb over the truth of this sermon and the invitation of heaven to all who will be desperate for grace so that you can continue marching on to hell. I plead with you, repent and believe before it's too late. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your 